From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. And now, on with the show. This is my life. It always will be. Nothing else. Just us. The cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. When it comes to Hollywood, we're all suckers. Suckers for the glamour, the fantasy, the celebrity, the perfection, and maybe even the facelift. You may pretend to be above it all, but you aren't. You can't fight it off. You really can't. It's in you before you even realize it, if you ever even do. Hollywood culture dominates, rules. It even influences what we fantasize about, especially what we fantasize about. Prepare the standard rich and famous contract for Kermit the Frog and Company. Each week on ReSound, we bring you a remix of the best radio stories and sounds from around the world. And today, Hollywood. People used to tease me that I ought to answer my phone, Hollywood, since I was completely convinced that they would call me. And then one day, they did. Hi, this is a message for Gwen. It's Jim Brooks calling for her. Um, Jim Brooks, James L. Brooks, producer of the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Taxi, The Simpsons, writer-director of Broadcast News, Terms of Endearment, was calling me. Hi, Gwen. My name is Nancy Josephson. I run the television department at ICM, which is a large talent agency in Los Angeles. I've heard your incredible NPR series. Just love it. And um, wanted That's to Jim's agent. That. When I called her back, our conversation went something like this. Hi, Gwen. It's Nancy Josephson. I work with Jim Brooks. Isn't this exciting? I mean, it's not every day you get a message on your answering machine from Jim Brooks. So listen, the reason I'm calling is because Jim wants to use your radio work for material for a potential sitcom. Isn't that exciting? You know, he would bring in a big celebrity, like maybe a Meg Ryan, only for TV. I mean, it would be like a modern-day That Girl. And he's done some work with Joan Cusack. As you know, he worked with her in Broadcast News. And he's thinking that maybe he wants to work with her again, has been looking for a vehicle, and this could be it. Joan Cusack? She did my makeup for the Evanston Township High School production of Fiddler on the Roof in 1978. Oh my God, you're from Chicago? (gasps) Jim is going to love that. And five years later, a sitcom about a short, neurotic Jewish girl who writes humorous essays for public radio went on the air. Only now it was a sitcom about a tall Catholic girl who teaches school and has an intensely good-looking boyfriend who happens to ask her to marry him on their second date. So your answer is no. My answer is, two days ago I thought it was premature to put you on my speed dial. Just look at it from my point of view. Here's a hint. Nervous breakdown. Everyone thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I thought i just died. With the exception of a very few people, the lack of humanity in Hollywood 
was astonishing. People were harassed. People were crushed. People were emotionally tormented. People were competitive, backstabbing, and underhanded. The hours were brutal. We gained an average of 20 pounds apiece, except for the head writer, who lost 30 pounds, contracted pneumonia, and then was fired, along with all the other writers. Every day was a roller coaster of trauma. We filmed 21 episodes to the tune of over a million bucks apiece. Nine aired. When it was canceled, some people got in their car and went back to L.A. before the audience even left the building. I came home and went to bed for a month. Except that I couldn't because I had three children, all under the age of five. And that was just one little person's experience on one little TV show. I was a complete neophyte, know-nothing, naive writer. But even when you're a director, a director with celebrities in your movie and money in the bank, it really doesn't matter. Enter Stage Right, our first piece, Sundance Roller Coaster, produced by Matt Holzman. The Sundance Film Festival doesn't just take place in Park City. It takes over Park City. At noon on the first Friday of the 10-day festival, headquarters at the Park City Marriott is swarming with publicists on cell phones, producers talking to studio execs, young actresses in fake fur, filmmakers schmoozing reporters, and volunteers answering everyone's questions about which shuttle bus goes where. You can tell who's who by the credentials dangling from their down parkas. I found Richard Shepard sitting alone upstairs in the industry and press center wearing his credential that says, Filmmaker. His film, His Baby, premieres tonight. I was on the plane with a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer, and he goes, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, uh, for some people it's just a screening, and for other people it's, you know, it's their entire career is resting on one screening. And I'm like, yep, yep. Richard is all too aware that The Matador is his best and probably last chance to become a Hollywood studio director. His knees bouncing a million miles a minute, and the table shaking so hard it looks like his latte is going to end up on the floor. But he doesn't even notice. He has five more hours to endure until his film premieres at the festival's largest venue. I woke up at five this morning with with just panic attacks that, like, the sound system was going to break down or that, you know, cell phones were going to go off in the middle of the movie. There's, I think there's 1,300 seats in the Eccles Theater, and there will be 1,300 cell phones and Blackberries. The Matador has as good a chance as any at this festival, and probably better. It's got big stars and big laughs, which are pretty rare at what some people would call the painfully earnest film festival. Richard's already written, directed, and produced four feature films. Though they've never been seen by anyone outside the Czech Republic, his experience will be helpful as they try to sell the film. This, after all, is a place where the business does business. Here at this festival, there's a lot of like first-time filmmakers, or as my friend Billy Morissette likes to call them, last-time filmmakers. I mean, if you don't understand the business element of the movie business, you're doomed. Stratus, the company that financed The Matador, has as much, if not more, at stake than Richard, like millions and millions of dollars. They have to make a deal with money up front to pay off their investors in the movie. Stratus has hired the powerful Hollywood talent agency CAA to help sell the film. CAA's had to walk a tightrope get the studios excited about the movie without creating expectations it can't meet. Tonight, their job is to get studio decision-making butts in seats. Normally, they'd be focusing their attention on Miramax, the festival's 10,000-pound gorilla, but the company's recently laid off more than half its people. That doesn't seem to worry Richard. I think the playing field's as good as it's ever been. 
I think the Miramax is a great, was a great company and probably will be again in some capacity. But the fact of the matter is, a few years ago, you didn't really have Fox Searchlight as a powerhouse that you do now. You didn't have Focus. You didn't have a Warner Independent. But the most powerful force at Sundance isn't a studio. It's the wholly unpredictable beast known as Buzz. It flies around Sundance parties, it rides the shuttle buses, and hangs out here at festival headquarters. Right now, the matador is so hot that when Richard overhears a couple looking for tickets, he suggests they try eBay. I was joking. <laughs> they are. No, they are. 300 a pair. Really? That's the, I, I love that. That's brilliant. I wish I was getting that money. Buzz is fickle and fragile, and Richard knows it. The star of this festival will be the director of a movie that no one has heard of, that comes out of nowhere and blows everyone away. And at the end of the day, every article that will be written about Sundance will lead with this movie that we have yet to discover. We'll know it in a week. But the focus now is on tonight's premiere, when the first shots will be fired in what Richard hopes will be the battle for the matador. These buyers are coming in here as a war. They're coming in as a team. They know what movies they're going to see. They've read as many scripts as possible of the films that they are going to see. They know what times they're playing. They have people going to every single screening of every single movie. And the fact is, we're going to know damn fast if our movie's going to sell or not. We may not know that it sells, but we're going to suddenly know if it doesn't sell. <laughs> Richard and his producers, Sean and Brian First, and their significant others, are staying in a fancy, ski lodgy looking condo just outside of town. In the late afternoon, they take a dip in the jacuzzi, which overlooks the exclusive Deer Valley Ski Resort. At five, two limos pull up to take Team Matador to the premiere. We're moving. Do you have a jacket yourself? Yeah, I... Everyone's ready to rock. We're here. Let's see, we have... Uh, you're Richard Shepard? Yes. Okay, you're in this vehicle Fantastic. with uh, six people. First, there's a stop at the VW Lounge, a converted storefront on Park City's normally rustic Main Street. I should note that everything on Main Street, everything in the whole town as a matter of fact, has been taken over by some kind of sponsor trying to get in bed with Hollywood. It's been a long time since Sundance was a little indie film festival, but it's never been this crazy. Even the short ride to the premiere has got a corporate tie-in. VW is a major backer of Sundance this year, and Richard and his stars have to get out of their limos and into Volkswagen SUVs for the final approach to the red carpet. On the way, Richard gets a call from one of the stars of his film, Greg Kinnear. I'm so happy. I'm so happy you're here, Greg. I can't wait to see you. So I'll see you in a few minutes. Yeah, we're going to all go, and then I guess we're all going in some sort of horrible convoy into, like, the depths of hell. Richard Shepard, the director. Great, great. Mexico City's an amazing... After running the gauntlet of press and fans, Richard's hustled into the Eccles Theater. I want to sit in the front row for the whole movie. It's a generically huge high school auditorium converted into a theater for the festival. He does a short intro. I'm thrilled to be here. I so appreciate Sundance taking our movie, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you very much. And then the lights go down, and the movie starts, and it's 92 minutes of sweaty palms for Richard Shepard.
It seems like the matador is a hit, but applause is cheap. The real litmus test is unfolding in the lobby. As folks stream out of the theater, the financiers and the studio people begin a mating dance where I loved it can mean I loved it or just about anything else. In condos throughout Park City and offices back home in New York and Los Angeles, execs are discussing The Matador. Can this film do business? How would they sell it? Does it fit in with the films they already have? Do they have the budget for it? What other films do they need to see before they make an offer, and can they afford to wait? While the money people talk, Richard and his posse head off to Main Street and the film's premiere party. It seems like a billion other people have the same idea. The parties at this year's festival are as out of control as everything else. The screening, it went very well, I think. I I survived it. I didn't cue. Hold on, it's my wife. Baby, where are you? Everyone's looking for you. We're in the VIP, VIP room. Where are you? Are you out outside, like not even in the place? At 10 the next morning, Main Street's so quiet you can hear the snow melting off the roofs. But phone calls and Blackberry messages have already been flying back and forth between Richard and his producers, CAA, and Stratus. Paramount, Fox Searchlight, and Lionsgate seem to be interested in acquiring The Matador. Focus and Sony Classics have passed outright. And Newmarket, the small but respected company that released The Passion of the Christ when no one else would touch it, has offered marketing support. They call it P&A for prints and advertising, but no cash up front. But to be honest with you, no one has made an offer. A lot of interest, no offer. Good interest, like not like depressing interest, good interest, but interest in an actual offer, two separate things. After somehow getting up for an 8 a.m. screening of his movie, Richard starts a press marathon, cruising from one sponsor's lounge to the next. It's the same scene in each tent and suite and storefront. A lot of very pretty people doing press and picking up crazy swag. Large shopping bags of really, really nice stuff. The price for Richard Shepard is sit-downs with vacant-eyed celebrity reporters at every turn, from Entertainment Tonight to Good Morning Ottawa. He walks into the in-style lounge looking disheveled and exhausted. Twenty minutes later, he emerges in swanky new jeans and a fresh pair of tennis shoes looking disheveled and exhausted. I'm tired. I just took my photo. My face is bloated. I'm standing next to Pierce Brosnan and Greg Kinnear. I look like the bloated, sad, pathetic friend that they wish they didn't have. But I'm feeling great. We had a great screening last night, and we had a great screening this morning, and the audiences seemed to like it. And... That means something, I think, to these buyers. But, you know, I think there's, there's stories out of Sundance every year of a movie that everyone's like, I wonder why, why was this movie not sold? At 2, Team Matador convenes to bring everyone up to speed. There isn't much to say, but then... In the middle of the meeting, the phone rings, and it's Harvey on the other line. It's Harvey Weinstein of Miramax. And supposedly he was like, how much is the rights? What's rights? You know, he's asking all about rights and... By the way, that's my Harvey Weinstein impression. It was pretty good, isn't it? If this film doesn't sell, I'm going to do stand-up. Weinstein's call is a surprise. He's been in protracted breakup talks with Disney, which owns Miramax. If Miramax buys The Matador and the divorce papers come through, it puts the movie in a weird place. I mean, it's hard to imagine that the folks who brought you Bambi marketing a film about an alcoholic assassin who likes young prostitutes... Three years ago, if you told, if anyone was told that Harvey Weinstein wanted to buy their movie at Sundance for any amount of money, they'd be doing a jig. A jig. 
because they were the they were the best. Now there's still no doubt that Harvey Weinstein's the best at putting out anything, but he could buy it and then not actually control it. The word on the street is that when Harvey leaves Miramax, he's arranged to take some movies with him. It'll be a lot easier to start a new company with a few finished films rather than projects in development. But his people have already spent $3.5 million for the Australian horror flick Wolf Creek at Sundance this year, and it's hard to know what kind of budget they have left. Later that evening, a film called Hustle and Flow premieres. Everyone in Hollywood originally turned it down, but now there's a feeding frenzy. I'm here with Craig Brewer, the writer-director, and Terence Howard, the star of Hustle and Flow, which is the sensation of this year's Sundance Film Festival. Hustle and Flow will be the big story out of Sundance, and you can almost feel it sucking the heat away from the matador. Panic's the wrong word, but just starting to be like, let's go. Someone actually make an offer, because you know, as it, each day that it drags on, the value of the movie sort of decreases in a strange way because people know it's not being sold. So they're like, well, they didn't sell it today. Maybe if we wait till the end of the week, we'll offer them 50 bucks and, you know, some granola. When I show up at Richard's condo Sunday morning, I'm surprised to find everyone bouncing around the place in their underwear. Last night, Miramax made an offer. It's a lowball offer, but it's an offer. And Roger Ebert's review of The Matador in the Chicago Sun-Times is a love letter. Pierce Richard Shepard calling. Good morning. I wanted to read you something. Do you have a second? Matador sounds on paper like a formula film, the kind of generic dreariness you expect Sundance to avoid. On the screen, it's another matter altogether. Ebert calls Pierce Brosnan's performance in The Matador the best he has ever given and says a lot of other very nice things. The is that no description can do it justice because its elements sound routine, but its direction, writing, and acting elevated into something very special. It's sideways with death instead of wine, someone said after the screening. I think it was me. I thought you'd enjoy that. Yes, I've left messages for everyone to try and get a copy of this to, like, CAA so they can get it to these distributors who are waffling. They just have to print this review and we're going to be, you know, in pretty good shape. By late Sunday afternoon, however, it's clear that Ebert's glowing review hasn't made much of a difference. Maybe it was the less-than-glowing reviews in Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. A bit down in the mouth, Richard heads off to Salt Lake City where his movie is screening as part of the festival's community outreach. Now, Salt Lake is only 45 minutes from Park City, but it's a million miles away from the Sundance Film Festival. In the Trolley Square Mall, where the screening's taking place, there's a Gap Kids and a Brookstone, but no celebrities, no Gucci sunglasses, and only the odd cell phone here and there. Sitting on the steps of the mall's atrium, the director of The Matador is looking less like Richard Shepard and more like Richard III, banished to the indie film Hinterlands. I'm exhausted. A movie sold today for over $10 million. Hustle and Flow? Um, Miramax had bid on it and lost it. Hustle and Flow ultimately went to Paramount. The good news for Richard is that Harvey Weinstein's miss has whet his appetite and left some budget for The Matador. Harvey Weinstein at this moment wants our movie. And we're now seeing whether we can work something out. But it's a disagreement about a lot of money. CAA basically is feeling like if we don't close it tonight, it, we will lose the mojo that we have. 
Hearing about the Miramax offer last night, Newmarket went fishing for some actual money to offer up front. They paired up with Icon, Mel Gibson's company, to make a cash offer. Harvey counter-offered with a real cash deal, and now the money looks good, but there are other deal breakers, like making sure the film actually makes it to theaters. Miramax is known for buying and shelving films to starve the competition of content. Well, I think that Bob, who runs Stratus, is asking for stuff that makes a lot of sense, but it's difficult. I asked that Harvey call me, I've never met the guy in my life, and tell me himself that he loved the movie, which he did, which was very exciting. You know, he thinks that Pierce is going to win awards and all of that. I mean, you know, he's sort of famous for saying that to directors because they that's awards and they instantly, you know, get an erection. You know, it's one of those code words. But it's, of course, very nice. I, I basically said, I don't want you to lose interest in this if you get it. And he said, I will, I do, blah, blah. I mean, he's been through this one trillion times. I mean, he's very slick and smart. Now, let's stop and think about it for a second. The entire Sundance frenzy reveals so much about the insanity of Hollywood dealmaking. Cadres of business affairs executives, accountants, and marketing and distribution people are standing by to instantaneously whip up concrete agreements for millions of dollars based on what? Essentially a frothy meringue of huge risks tempered by nothing more than a power lunch and blind faith. Richard's producers decided to work with him basically after just one meeting. For some reason, they just believed in him. They trusted him. Pierce Brosnan's company agreed to work with him for much the same reasons. And now, Richard, a hardened, cynical, veteran filmmaker, has become willing to entrust his film on a single phone conversation with a man named Harvey. But there's no deal yet. And there may not be. I feel tired and scared. I'm scared that we're not going to make this deal. And then I don't know what's going to happen. The screening at the mall is about to end, and so we head into the theater for the Q&A. Hey everyone, filmmaker Richard Shepard. Thank you so much for watching and staying. A large man with a cane asks, Has it been picked up yet? Has it been picked up yet? Uh, we are talking to several people. This, in fact, is untrue. Richard got a call right before the Q&A with very, very good news. Um, it's not public yet, but we, we closed with Miramax. It's unbelievable. $7.5 million for the rights and $10 million committed for P&A, to be exact. That may sound like a lot, but it's not going to make Richard Shepard a rich man. In fact, he doesn't expect to see another penny from the Matador. But he's got a calling card and an open door, at least for a few weeks, into studio filmmaking. I feel blessed. I feel blessed. This is, this is had there been a bidding war, what we ended up with would be about where, our fantasy. Richard's angst is over, and it feels a little anticlimactic. We're a long way from Sundance, and Salt Lake City is not exactly the party capital of the world. After a few weak margaritas at the Hard Rock Cafe... Yes, you heard me right. We drive back to Park City. On the road, no one says a thing. The next day, everyone's getting ready to leave Park City. But like everything in Hollywood, nothing's ever really done when you think it is. Um, there's still a few little issues being worked out. The lawyers and the financiers and Miramax are up till 5 in the morning, I was told, trying to nail this down. Um, everyone's trying to make it work. 
um, but they've they've withhold withheld the press release um, because it's not done. The I's will be dotted and the T's crossed, and the press release released early the next day. This is a sweet deal. They they're paying a lot of money for the movie. They're paying a lot of money to promote the movie, and that's exciting. It's my phone. Hold on. Hello. Okay. So when is it go- when is it when is it going to go out? Uh, my publicist is on the phone and and she's reading me the quotes that I supposedly said in the press release. And and what are they? For all of Richard's talk about the business, the deal wasn't really the highlight of Sundance for him. It was what the deal meant for his future and the future of his film. The moment I knew that the audience was getting the movie and that it was playing that opening night was an amazing moment. I was like, they're with me. They're going to go on this journey with me. And so that means our movie continues. There's life for this movie. It was pretty freaking great. But he also knows that the head of Miramax has earned the name Harvey Scissorhands for his habit of recutting films he's bought. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, the only thing I know is that, you know, if they, if they cut my movie in any way that I don't like, I'll kill him and he'll be dead. So, you know, I have that over him. You can use what I just said because it's true. I will. I will kill him. <laughs> so, I mean, he, can, he, he could do it, but he'll be dead. So, I mean, I'll be in jail, but he'll be dead. Hopefully, there'll be no homicides before The Matador makes it into theaters, but there certainly will be a lot of ups and downs. For now, it's back to real life. No more screenings, no more parties, no more swag. On the way to the airport, I tell my taxi driver that I'm looking forward to going home. He looks at me in the rearview mirror and says, Not to be rude, but I'll be glad when y'all are gone. Sundance Roller Coaster by Matt Holzman. We wanted to talk to him more about the piece. And my first question to you, Matt, is how did you find Richard Shepard? Um, did you know him? Did you arbitrarily find him? I mean, I think everybody has the image of Sundance and the people in their parkas and their ID hat tags hanging from their neck in the snow. And But what's surprising about this piece is, A, the up-and-down nature of the business, which I think a lot of people don't know about, and, B, the fact that Richard is just such a great character, you know, I'm the producer of a, of a national show about the business of show business called The Business. And what we've discovered in, in, in producing the show is that, you know, it would be easier to get Carl Rove to come on the show and talk about his drug use than it is to get most people in Hollywood to talk honestly about their experience. Because Hollywood <laughs> is a place where the main motivating factor is fear, followed closely behind by anger. And then number three is fear again. And... Um, <laughs> To get this kind of access requires friendship. It's like nepotism required to do this kind of uh, reporting. And Richard is a person that I've known for many, many, many years. And when I proposed this, I said, Richard, uh, this is what I want to do. And I said, but the only way I'll do it is if I have complete access and you can't tell me not to record it. You're going to have to You're gonna have to just assume that I'm going to use my best judgment. And he said, great. It was his knowing me and trusting me to not do anything that would damage his career, get him killed, that allowed me to have the access that I did. Oh, he's so funny. Well, he he is an incredibly funny guy, and he is a wonderful character, partially because his ambition and his energy comes from kind of a pure place. Mm -hmm. Pure is not a word to use associated with Hollywood Mm -hmm. much. But, um, you know, he's been in the New York scene his whole life. He's never really worked as a director in Los Angeles, so he's been somewhat untainted. 
But Richard had all these advantages. He had stars, he had financial backing, he had marketing from CAA. So why is it a roller coaster even for him? The, the thing about Hollywood, which is the most painful, is the waiting game. Yeah. Is that, you know, day one, somebody says yes. Day two, they say no. Day three, they say maybe. And you're always on tenterhooks. It seems like nothing is ever quite done. Until the movie is out in the theaters and people are buying tickets. Right. It's just, it's it's always about to collapse. And in, for me, that kind of situation is com- untenable. I mean, it's an emotionally untenable situation. I think for people like Richard, you have to either keep a sense of humor or be extremely angry or, you know, on high doses of volume to kind of make it through. And he, I think, perhaps has some combination of the three. <laughs> I don't know that for a fact. The tone of the piece, Sundance Roller Coaster, fits right into the tone of the show, the business, because it's got an attitude and it's funny and on the show you would joke around and uh, it's sort of snarky. Um, but has there ever been a time on the show when you've thought to yourself, in, in even one part of your brain, ooh, like maybe we shouldn't be saying that or letting that on the air? The problem is is that this is, this is a show about the, the business, and the people in the business speak a particular kind of way so and have a certain kind of attitude. And the question is, can I put the, a real reflection of that way they speak and their attitude on the air because it's very politically incorrect. Yet to do a show about the business, to not reflect it accurately is to not to do a show about the business of show business. So this is an example of snarkiness, but it's a, 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 an example of political incorrectness. They were, you know, MGM was noted for just not doing well with movies. The movies would come out, they would release these movies, and then they would die. And so Claude at one point repeated a joke that he had heard from an agent that said, if you wanted to stop the spread of AIDS in Hollywood, you released it through MGM. <laughs> now, Claude laughed at it. The two guests he had laughed at it. I laughed at it. And I said, it's politically incorrect. It's not appropriate. And yet, we thought it was funny. And the people who are listening who will find it funny, even though they'll be kind of upset by it equally. And I I debated and debated and ended up leaving it in because that is Hollywood. At what point do you draw the line and think, okay, this could mean we never eat lunch in this town again, or this is just, you know, this will fly and it'll be great? We never, ever can worry about that. The difference in doing a piece about Richard is I don't want to keep him from not being, you know, doing lunch in the town. What happened, you know, Claude, who hosts my program, and me, we don't really, we're just anthropologists. We don't eat based on what happens in Hollywood, really. And so... As an outsider, we're expected to be snarky, and everybody loves it, but we're not really involved. For the people involved, that kind of snarkiness is just, it's very risky. There's a, there's a situation where, and I actually sent Richard this clip just to make him nervous, but at one point, he had a wireless mic on, and I can tell you the story because I won't use the names, and uh, we're at a huge party, and uh, a guy walks up, and you hear Richard kind of chatting with him, and the guy walks away, and Richard's wife, Carolyn, walks up to him, and, and Carolyn goes, who is that? And he says, it's Joe Blow. He's the president of such and such company. And Carolyn says, do we like him? And there's a big beat. And then Richard said, if you like pure evil. (laughs) And I think it's very telling about the nature of Hollywood. And perhaps I could have blacked out the guy's name. But you see how that could affect. I mean, in Hollywood, you never know who you're going to end up working with. And so that, that would have affected him and his ability to do business. And that's where I cross the line. For us, you know. 
we get our, I mean, the stuff we you hear from people, you know, you know, every time we interview somebody from a studio, they call us and tell us how disgusted they are with us and how, we'll, you know, they'll never work with us again until the next time. <laughs> and you put another notch on the wall and go away happy. There is a little bit of that feeling. I mean, it's interesting. The first show we did, we did about Disney, and we managed to cajole, like, one of the, the, the studio head, Nina Jacobson, to get on the show. And when we were done with the show, I felt... I was embarrassed because I felt like it was so pro Disney that it didn't in, in our in our desire to get her on the show we had kind of negotiated our way our our ability to be totally honest about some of the Michigas that was going on there. And so I was like way, ready to get a phone call from them saying thank you so much you're the only people who have dealt with us even handedly and I got a call at like seven o'clock in the morning from the head of PR at Disney the next day telling us how upset they were. <laughs> And that they would never work with us again, and how dis- that they could not believe that people in public radio would would behave in such a you know a disgusting that was the word he used disgusting way, and I was like, are you? It's like are you completely paranoid? But they all they are paranoid. I don't know what they're paranoid of, but it's the fear that comes from the movie making business that somehow translates into the kind of bigger world of the business of show business. You've got an inherent paradox where you've got public radio with its reputation for being even-handed and fair, and the pure, the sort of the you know non-commercial pureness of of what they try and do, <laughs> uh, trying to cover this like most cynical, most barbaric kind of industry. How does that happen? How does that mix? Yeah, this is Pat Boone reporting from Sodom kind of thing. <laughs> you got um, it. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because what's what's frustrating for me is that they don't understand that it's public radio. It's like, look, this is not gotcha. This is not the, this is not the globe. This is not tabloid. This is public radio. We really want to know the real story behind your business. Imagine if you were in the in like the paperclip business. And I was like, tell me about the paperclip business. You would say, oh, wow, well, let me tell you. We get the metal from here, and this is how we bend it. You'd be so excited to talk about your business and how it works. But these people, um, they think that you're out to get them all the time. And it's only gotten worse. Constantly I'm saying to them, don't you understand? I'm public radio. And that seems to mean nothing to them. That was Matt Holtzman. He's no longer producing The Business, but he's still at KCRW in California. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival. Each week we bring you stories and sounds from producers around the world. If you have business for us or you want to give us the business, feel free. Our email is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Of course, you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Everybody thinks they have a story to sell. But not everybody has the opportunity or the chutzpah to actually try and sell it. This is not the case for Anna Tesler and Lauren Engel. Call it nervy or call it naive, but they had an idea and just went west. Here's their pitch. The movie is called Eighth Grade Washington Trip, and it's a story of three best friends from New Jersey who, three girls, what? You're doing the whole pitch. I know. <laughs> I thought I was gonna. We were gonna both say things. Oh right. The movie is called Eighth Grade Washington Trip. Eighth Grade Washington Trip is about three <laughs> best friends. Okay, so they didn't completely have their pitch down, but they were confident that they had something with that Eighth Grade Washington Trip idea. Now, when this story was produced, Anna and Lauren had been writing comedy for the previous five years or so. During the day, they had babysitting jobs, and at night, they did stand up in New York clubs, which is not exactly easy work. 
Neither of them had health care for years, and they were basically just getting by. And so really, they had nothing to lose. We went out there saying to ourselves, if we don't get this, we're probably going to have to come back and kill ourselves because we were at the end of our rope as far as money. We left our babysitting jobs. We probably had like $300 each or something like that. And if we didn't get it, we didn't really have a plan for what we would do. So uh, we don't know when we're going to go to L.A. We're still at the airport. Lauren was freaking out more than I was because Lauren's scared of planes. Well, I was kind of like, it might be a relief if the plane crashes because we don't have to deal with what's ahead, you know? So if the plane crashes, it means the last thing people know of us is that we had a great idea for a movie and, you know, we die in honor. And if we go out there and fail, then we hopefully will crash on the way back. It was really super sunny. And I thought it was nighttime. I thought I think it was in the day. It we was, got there late at night. We went to oh, Patrick's. Oh, right. It was really late at night. Yeah, it was It was creepy. not sunny because it was really, really dark. Scary. And we were freaked out. And The house was beautiful, though. Yeah. Okay, this is the first house we're in. Patrick Young's home. Oh. Hallway, long hallway. Okay, taking you down. Lauren is in the bathroom. Say hi through the bathroom. Hi. So it was our first day in L.A. We were settling in. We were ready to go on pitches to find a producer when we get a phone call from Scott Armstrong saying that he was going to produce our movie. Scott Armstrong is a friend of ours who is also a comedian in New York, and he has written a few movies and so when he said he was going to produce our movie, we were psyched. Cheers with whatever is ahead. And, and clink. Cheers. Scott told us to sit tight until he got there, which was going to be in two weeks, and then we'd finally start to work on the pitch with him. So basically, we'd have nothing to do for two weeks. Yeah. So we have no idea what we're supposed to do in L.A., so we just figure we may as well go to the beach because that's what everyone seems to do. Mm-hmm. You've got two girls in, like, boots, <laughs> jeans, like, full Sweaters. outfits at the beach. It's like the first time a kid sees snow. Oh, my God. They're dolphins, man. We were, like foreigners kind of you know we just didn't know where where we were supposed to go we didn't know how to get around we didn't know anybody and we felt like it's a different culture out there so we were just trying to kind of get adjusted to it I don't recommend the today's today's sucking we can't even find Sunset Plaza we've been driving around for two hours L.A. was really starting to get on get on our nerves. There's this foundation of just, like, darkness always right. that's looming over your head. And it's just like, the city sucks your soul out. We went out there with the concept of telling them this brilliant idea and thinking that they would give us money just to write the script. Having... Meanwhile, we don't have one writing sample. We never wrote a script together. The only thing we've ever written 
our sketches for our comedy show. We have never done anything past five pages, not even in college or, you know, in an essay or anything like that. We're going out there to write a movie. We're going to pitch an idea based on nothing. So it's a real risk. Hi, here we are at Kinko's. Press 10, 1, 0. But 12. 12. Oh, wait. Stuck. Um, so we're making color copies for our press kit, and we just realized that each color copy is 99 cents, which would um, total everything to be $148. $148 when we have only like 200 left. So our financial status was not high to begin with, but then to top it all off, Lauren's bank card got stolen. So she's on the phone with Chase right now. They stole another $252 from me. In Mexico? They went down to Mexico and had a shopping spree at some electronic stores. At Wasante Pedro. It was kind of funny because I was like, I'm the worst person to steal a credit card from because I don't have any money. At this point, we still hadn't pitch to anyone except our agent and it's it's like week three or something i don't know but we're almost we're about to go home in like a week and nothing has happened we've been in la for so long and we haven't done anything hi we're here in the car and uh, anna finally broke down usually i'm the one that breaks down let's talk to anna and we just got out of a four-hour meeting with scott and i'm a little overwhelmed right now because we just found out that we might have to stay an extra week <laughs> it's really overwhelming because we have no place to stay. We're still in the car. It's about half an hour later. Anna's feeling a little better. What I don't understand is that, or do they really listen to anything you say when you're in the pitch meeting? Can't we just tell them the title, who we are, what we do, and aren't they just going to give us the money? I mean, are they really going to listen to what we say? I don't know about that, but what I do know is that I do not want to go back to New York unless we sell this movie. Do you understand me? At this point, we were like, you know what? Maybe maybe things aren't going to turn out the way we thought they would. You believe in something so much, and then suddenly you realize that it's possible that it couldn't happen. And then all of a sudden you start going down that... Spiral. Spiraling downfall, hell. hell, chasm. Hell spiral. Hell spiral, chasm. And then we got a call from Scott. Okay. So Scott pitched it to Todd Phillips, you know, the director of old school, yeah, and road trip, and he wrote it, uh uh-huh. Anyway, so he pitched it to him, and um, Todd loves it. Scott Armstrong, our producer, pitched it to Todd Phillips, and Todd Phillips is big-time director, comedy writer. I mean, very sought after, huge. This is huge. He did road trip. He'd created taxi cab confessions. He's a big deal. And especially during that one week that we were out there and old school was opening up, it was just, it was perfect timing. Okay, we're in. We're in here. Then we're in the movie. It was actually premiered while we were out there, and then we got to go to a screening of it. They had tickets for us, and we were so excited. We were the first in line. Uh huh. (laughs) Hey, hey, be careful with that. That's the most powerful trank gun on the market. Huh. Got her in Mexico. Cool. Yeah, it is cool. They say it can puncture the skin of a rhino from a hunt. Oh. 
So the day finally came for us to have our first pitch meeting. Scott was like, get be ready at any time today to meet with Todd Phillips and have a conference call with Bob Weinstein. Bob Weinstein, the most powerful man in Hollywood. All right. This is the most inspirational song ever, ever written. It's by Eminem. It's by Eminem. If you had one shot, one opportunity, one opportunity. to seize to seize or seize everything you've ever wanted in one moment. Probably just seize. Would you capture it? Or would you just let it slip? We hadn't had one meeting, we hadn't done anything, and then we get a call from Scott. Um, Merrimax just bought our movie. We didn't even pitch it. I don't know what's going on. They just pitched the movie. What? And, and they bought the movie. <laughs> Wait, what the... F Are you kidding? <laughs> um... Uh, Bob White. We just sold our movie. Bob White. I'm in a towel. <laughs> we just sold our movie. You get Bob Weinstein on the phone if, once and every... You don't say no to him. Right. You do not say no to him. And, and they said the words, eighth so, grade Washington trip. And he got it. All this preparation, maybe seven months of preparation for this pitch. We don't have to do anything. We didn't even have to do it. We're not signing anything that you give us at all. Unless you pay me in return for the thing he's going to sign, and I'll review it on your. So behalf. suddenly we were important, and now we had to go on meetings, and now we had to have a lawyer. You want to say something though? Very valid. If you want a gay lawyer, we'll bring one in. Okay. Yeah, not gay, but we'd been wandering around LA for three weeks doing nothing. No one cared about us, and now Bob Weinstein's on our side, and so is the rest of Hollywood. I know you guys are smarter than that. You don't make any snap decisions because after the last meeting, you want to review this tape. And then that'll bring it all back. And then if $75,000. Our deal is for $75,000 between the two of us. And I mean, and for so like, we were that's for like three freaking. months. Yeah. Yeah. Like $37,000 each. Yeah. When we've been making less than $15,000 a year for the past seven years. Yeah. Tomorrow is our last day. And I think we're going we're gonna to miss it a little bit here in Los Angeles. We're gonna miss it a little bit. Yep, so good end. So good end. With time, I guess, came affection and love for LA. <laughs> It was our home, and we were we were starting to feel a little comfortable there. I think we found our niche a little bit in L.A. We, we made a couple new friends. We were good drivers at this point. All in all, L.A. can be a, a friendly place. It can embrace you because... Because Bob Weinstein embraced us. Right. And so we headed back to New York. It's, it's, it's a sunny, sunny day. day. It's a sunny day here in New York. Thank you for using the Gordia Airport. It's funny how in 12 hours palm trees have turned to crappy trees, stems of dirt. New York didn't have quite the twinkle that it had when we left. It was really dark <laughs> and dirty, and uh, it um. Our legs hurt from walking. All I wanted to do was get in the car and drive. 
When we came up the stairs, first of all, our five-floor walk-up was never so hard to it, walk it, up. It was now like a ten-floor walk-up. We're home. It's totally weird. Plants are dead. And it was just dark and dreary. And you don't realize how important sunshine is until it's gone. We actually had to write a screenplay. Like we were, we were kind of like we were just kidding, you know. We, we, were we just didn't really think about you writing. guys yeah. would want us to write it. We don't, we don't write screenplays. We couldn't even figure out how to write the first line, so we bought um, screenplay for dummies. Screen... Screenwriting for dummies. Yeah. All I can picture is the first page that says eighth grade Washington trip <laughs> interior fade in. Lauren and Anna did get through the first page and actually finished the script. Their story was produced by Amanda Aronchek for WNYC's The Next Big Thing. The Next Big Thing is no longer on the air, but is archived at WNYC.org. By the way, remember the $75,000 that Laura and Anna got for their script? Well, between splitting it, taxes, agent fees, and lawyer fees, they each ended up with about 5000 bucks. Is that you? You're through, Harry. Come out. You haven't got a chance this way. What do you want? You might as well give up. It's the most thing you Get back. Keep back, sir. Come back. Hey, come back, sir. Okay, so enough about the business of Hollywood, about everybody clawing their way to the top to sell their idea. Let's talk about when movies were movies, when the studio system ruled with an iron fist, when you saw a gun in the first act, you knew it was going to go off by the third act, when movies were black and white, when women were dames, and everything was very, very smoky. Here is Film Noir by Sarah Fishko. Sometimes you don't know what you're doing until after you've done it. Writers and directors in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s didn't exactly know they were making films that would later be seen as connected by era, content, and style. It was on a side road outside of Los Angeles. And then given a name. I was hitchhiking from San Francisco down to... Film Noir. San Diego, I guess. Every interview I've ever done with anybody involved in the making of these films said we had no idea what, you know, still don't know what Film Noir is. We were just making crime dramas. They are dangerous and armed. Shoot to kill. Eddie Muller is the author of Dark City, The Lost World of Film Noir. He's had a lifelong obsession with these movies, made in those uneasy years during and after the Second World War, and then named by the French. There was an embargo on Hollywood product in Europe during World War II. So it wasn't until after the war that these French cinemas began showing retrospectives of everything that the French had missed during World War II. And that is the point at which several critics made the observation that, you know, what what's happened in Hollywood? All of a sudden, you know, the films have gone black. They're, why this sudden darkness and this bitterness? We go together, Laurie. I don't know why. Maybe like 
guns and ammunition go together. I'll do anything you want. Many of them had been made by Europeans who'd fled Nazi Germany and come to Hollywood. They set about adapting crime novels by writers like Raymond Chandler and James M. Cain, and they had a certain attitude. You thought you had a cold, didn't you? All wrapped up in tissue paper with pink ribbons around it. I sort of distill it down into the idea of you know it's wrong, you do it anyway, and now you can't escape. You want to know who killed Dietrichson? Hold tight to that cheap cigar of yours, Keys. I killed Dietrichson. There is certainly no escape in Double Indemnity, in which an insurance salesman follows his fetching customer down the road to murder. The ultimate noir, people drowning in greed and lust. As he says in that movie, I did it for the money, and I did it for a woman. And I didn't get the money, and I didn't get the woman. I didn't get the money, and I didn't get the woman. Pretty, isn't it? I did it for a woman, and I did it for the money. I didn't get the woman, and I didn't get the money. Karen Holliger likes that line, too. She's the author of In the Company of Women. Years ago, she became interested in the way noir films look at men and women. Is there anything I can do? The insurance ran out on the 15th. I'd hate to think of you having a smashed fender or something while you're not uh, fully covered. This bantering back and forth between them. Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. And there's this sense of, well, who's going to win? The warning this time. Both of them trying to sort of have the upper hand. Although in most more films, it's pretty clear who has the upper hand. I went to Pablo's that night. I knew I'd go every night until she showed up. I knew she knew it. The female character, the femme fatale, has much greater visual significance than anyone else in the film. And then she walked in out of the moonlight, smiling. She stands out. Camera follows her. Camera looks at her legs. Camera is fascinated by her, as the narrator is. She draws the attention visually, whereas the voiceover is attempting to draw the attention to the male narrator. And the viewer, it seems to me, is sort of caught in the middle. Voiceover is a film noir staple. As I drove off, it was still raining. And the drops streaked down the windshield like tears. What else characterizes noir's sound? Look who's here. What's the sound of people smoking? I saw Out of the Past again the other day. I showed it for an audience, and it was unbelievable how much smoking goes on in that film. Cigarette? Smoking. That's the sound of noir. It's men and women smoking. And, and ice cubes tinkling in a glass and uh, tires on wet pavement and the, the rustling of curtains and gowns and, and guns being loaded. Not necessarily fired, but guns being loaded. And, of course, often they were fired. The sound of rapid-fire dialogue. My right hand hasn't seen my left hand in 30 years. I'll do it, J.J., don't get me wrong. In for a penny, in for a pound, I'll go through with it. It's a curious thing that these brittle, cynical films that came out of the Hollywood studios, for the most part, reached us the way they did, and still do, considering their modest beginnings. Noir films kind of started out as B-movies, and nobody paid much attention to them. Director Jim McBride. But you feel in these films there's somebody speaking behind them. It's that post-war voice, both tormented and true to itself. The voice they spoke in was a very personal voice, and it was a very clear voice. 
and one that you could clearly understand and relate to. Since then, there have been films made in that tradition, neo-noir, post-noir, semi-noir, noir-ish. But what happened to the real noir films made in that period? Eddie Muller, who, by the way, calls himself the czar of noir, has his theory, which is that Hitchcock ended it all. That's where a crime thriller suddenly veers off and becomes a horror film. The subtlety of the classic film noir era sort of went down the drain when Janet Lee is killed in Psycho, and a whole new type of sensational cinema comes into vogue. To me, Psycho is, is the pivot point in American cinema. You can actually have this horrible murder in the film, and there's you know transvestitism in the film, and matricide. There was no going back. So yes, by that logic, it is gone forever. And even imitations can't be quite the same because of what we've seen since. But these are movies, after all, so we can look at them forever. The shiny nighttime streets, the curling smoke, and those characters, they're part of us. Mildred Pierce, Walter Neff, Sidney, J.J., Frank Chambers, Waldo Lidecker, and all the rest. Proper companions as we make our way through the dark, modern world, no? Film Noir by Sarah Fishko. If you want to hear more Fishko files, go to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound. You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the picture that got smaller. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>